Good morning. It is uh, such a pleasure to be with here uh, with you today. My name is Greg Berquist. Um, I am uh, currently the conference superintendent for leadership development, so I work at the conference office in Sacramento, live in Sacramento. But for the last uh, 30 years, I have been the pastor in a local church in Georgia and Texas and have been in California since 1991. And so I'm just kind of getting used to not having a community that I worship with regularly every Sunday morning. And I must confess, even though my new job is quite exciting and challenging, I miss this. Uh, so I've been looking forward to this for several weeks now, to be able to be here with you and to, to worship with you and, and be part of community. You know, and it's always kind of different because as I'm walking, I realize I don't know the traditions, you know, and what you expect and what you don't expect. And I know Communion Sunday is a, is a really, uh, you know, a special Sunday. And, and I'm, I'm sure Pastor Kelly gets you out exactly on time, Communion Sunday, right? <laughs> well, I'm happy to say that's not going to happen today either. And... Um, and uh, but uh, it's you know it's it's a wonderful experience to gather in community. And so I, as I was doing this, I think out of my excitement for the last couple of weeks, I've been replaying all the churches that I had the honor to serve over these past thirty years, and I found myself all the way back in my very first church. Uh, it was in Baconton, Georgia. I'm, I'm sure you've all heard of Baconton. Um, <laughs> It's a little, little small farm community in South Georgia, population of 759. Uh, my church, Bacon T. United Methodist Church, had 150 uh, members, and we had an average worship attendance of 120. And uh, so I loved going to annual conference. And what I would ask my colleagues is, so what percentage of the population of your town <laughs> worships in your church every Sunday morning? I always won that one. It was great. Um, but it, it, was, it was a great little church for me. I, I served it uh, while I was going to school at, at seminary at Emory University. In fact, that was kind of their mission. Uh, it's called Student Local Pastor, and they loved to support students while they were going to seminary. So I would serve the church from Friday afternoon through Monday, and then Tuesday morning I would wake up early and drive to Atlanta and, and be in class from Tuesday until about Friday lunch. Now, to tell you the truth, it was kind of crazy. Uh, my schedule was, was amazing, but, but being a part of a church while I was studying was a really kind of special thing. And, and they taught me so many things about what it really means to be an ordained pastor. And, and I was thinking about all those things. Now, I remember this, uh, this story, this uh, event that happened in my life there that has informed and defined my ministry right from the very beginning. Um, I had been there about a year. And um, at Emory, uh, through this mission society I was working with, I had met a, uh, a pastor who had been doing it for a while. His name was uh, the Reverend John Workman. He was from Barbados. And John and I became friends, and so at one point he invited me to come and preach a revival uh, at his church in Barbados. It was actually five churches. He was serving five churches in one time. And, you know, and in the South and in the Caribbean, a revival was kind of a big deal, and it was, it was very flexible and loose. It would start on a Sunday, and it would end, I don't know, somewhere around Thursday or Friday. And we ended when we were done, you know. And, and a worship service would be anywhere from an hour and a half to two and a half, three hours long, depending upon what happened at that service. So I went down and, and had this great experience in Barbados, and it was wonderful. And uh, Pastor, Pastor John was just so hospitable to me that I did the natural thing. 
I invited him to come and preach at my church in Baconton, Georgia. Now, this was 30 years ago, okay? South Georgia, okay? Uh, Pastor John's skin was much darker than mine. And there was a little bit of hesitancy and, and fear about having my friend, although he was a pastor and a good Methodist, come and preach at my church, little small rural farm community in Baconton, Georgia. Well, I had already invited him, and I really wasn't inclined to uninvite him. So, but we had to talk about it, and we had to work it through, and it, and it was kind of scary, I realized, for some of my folks. But we kind of loved each other, and, and, and we worked it out, and we said, we're going to do this. And if the community doesn't like it, we will find a way through. I had extended hospitality, and, and we were going to go ahead. So we kind of worked up to it, and, and uh, we prepared ourselves, and uh, Pastor John came, and it was Sunday morning, and you, you got to know, he was a great preacher, just a fabulous preacher, and so he comes in Sunday, and we start doing our thing, and there's great singing, and we were having a wonderful time, and he starts preaching, okay, and to tell you the truth, I think his sermon went for about an hour. But, but he, was, he was that good, and he, he had us on the edge of our seats. And I was enjoying it, and I was thinking, wow, what a, what a great thing to have him here today. And then all of a sudden, about halfway through his sermon, I looked way over there in the corner, and I noticed that Brother Joe was sitting back in the corner in the sanctuary. Now, you might think that I was happy about that. He didn't come to church very often. But it made me a little bit nervous in fact, in fact, someone after the last service said, now come on, you were scared to death, right? And yes, I was. <laughs> because Brother Joe was a member of my church, attended regularly, but I also knew that he was the head of the local KKK chapter in that region. And so I had no idea what he was going to do. My assumption was is that he may have been there to disrupt the worship service. And so now I go back and forth and trying to enjoy uh, Pastor John's sermon and wondering what Brother Joe was going to do. You know, in, in South Georgia 30 years ago, we called everybody brother and sister. That's what we did. But he was there. So somehow we get through it. And, um, and in a retreat setting, what you do is after the sermon, you invite everyone to come up and have prayer time, you know, in the, uh, in the chancel area. And, and what it was is everybody came, and, and the pastors and some, and some lay folks who, who like to pray with people, we would come and we'd pray for each other. To tell you the truth, that went on for about 45 minutes because everybody came up and we were all praying for each other, and there was this wonderful time. And somewhere during that, Pastor Joe, I mean, uh, Brother Joe just slipped out. And when I realized that at the end of the service, I, I went, whew. I thought, wow, dodged a bullet. And then for the rest of the week, I never saw him again for the rest of the uh, revival. And we had this great week, and it was absolutely wonderful. So I thought, to be honest, I thought I had dodged a bullet. Well, about two weeks later, maybe three weeks later, I get a telephone call. And it's from Brother Joe. And he said, uh, Pastor Greg, I was wondering if uh, we might have a chance to talk with each other. And the uh, first good sign was he was still calling me Pastor Greg, and I liked that. And, um, and I said, sure, uh, be glad to. How about this afternoon? He said, great. He said, why don't you come on uh, to my home? Of course, he, he was a farmer. And he said, uh, maybe we can take a walk in uh, my fields and have a chat. And I went, hmm. <laughs> well, 
Now, you understand, you know what he grew? He grew cotton. I mean, isn't, wasn't that ironic? But, but that's what he grew. And um, so I finally, I said, okay, I'll do it. But I, I'm, I'm not a stupid person. So I called about three or four people and let them know that I was going over to uh, Brother Joe's <laughs> later that afternoon to walk in the fields. And, and so I did, and, and, and we started on, on the porch in rocking chairs, drinking sweet tea, because that's what you do. And then finally I said, uh, yeah, let's go out for a walk. And so we start walking in his fields, and he starts telling me about the upcoming harvest. And all of a sudden, he gets to where I know he's going to get. And he said, so Pastor Greg, I, I want to talk about that, um, that revival. I said, uh-huh. I figured that's why you wanted to talk to me. He said, I, I, want, I want to ask you some questions about that, uh, that preacher, uh, John Workman. I said, please, you know, go right ahead. He said, now, don't take this the wrong way, but he was, he was a pretty good preacher. I went, don't worry, I'm not going to take that the wrong way at all. Yeah, you're right, he, I, I agree, he was a good preacher. And in fact, he said, now, now, really, please don't take this the wrong way, but he's, he's probably the best preacher I've ever heard in my life. I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> this is great, and I can't take any credit for it at all. You know, it's just, it's just kind of happening. And then he said, but, but I got a question. I said, sure, sure, Brother Joe, what's your question? He goes, you don't think he's really black, do you? <laughs> I said, what, what do you mean? He said, I mean, don't you, don't you think he's just kind of like a dark brown I said, Brother Joe, no, I, I, I think he, he, he probably thinks of himself as a black man uh, from Barbados. But what I hear you saying to me is how surprised you are that this man who has darker skin to you that you've thought about in a particular way touched you, spoke to you, somehow got through things that you thought, you really, that you thought were really important, and all of a sudden you heard things in a completely different way. And he goes, yeah. Yeah, that's what's going on. Powerful experience for me. Powerful experience for Brother Joe. I, I, I've carried that with me through my entire ministry. And I realized what happened was, is that he had to look in some of the deep waters of his life, right? And he saw things that were completely unexpected, he was touched by an experience. He was touched by a man who he thought had nothing to say to him. And what happened, it said something to him that he just could not ignore. He felt way in over his head, but he knew something important had happened in his life. See, that's what the scripture's talking about today, isn't it? That, that, that scripture, I love that scripture. It's one of my favorites, and I know I'm not supposed to have a favorite scripture, but there's one of them. And, um, and what I love about it is just so real. It's a fishing story. You all know that, right? It's about fishing. And, and I love to fish, and so I kind of get that. So if it is a fishing story at, on fa at face value, who are the experts in this story? Well, it's, it's Simon, James, and John, right? Jesus was not the expert in the story because Jesus was not a fisherman. Jesus, by legend, says he was a carpenter, right? And, but they get talking about fishing. If you remember, uh, Simon and James and John had been out fishing all night long, and they had not caught a thing. 
and they had just pulled their boats up onto the shore. It was probably about mid-morning, and they were cleaning their nets, you know, getting ready for the next day. And, and Jesus comes up, and, and if you read the story carefully, they knew each other. They were not strangers because they were referring to each other by name, and there, so there was some relationship already in place there. And he turns to Simon and says, hey, can I borrow your boat for a moment? And Simon goes, sure. So he pulls out a little bit from the shore and uses the, the boat to, to preach and teach to the crowds a little bit. And then Simon's in the boat with Jesus and says, now, here's what I want you to do, Simon. I want you to go ahead and push on out to the shore, and I want you to cast your nets on the other side of the boat into the deep water. Well, if you remember from the scripture, Simon, Simon was a little incredulous. He knew that wasn't going to work. I mean, Simon's the, 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 the expert, right? He's the one who fishes every day. Uh, now, any of y'all fish? Yeah? Well, this is lake fishing, and this isn't the way you always do lake fishing, but at that time, and, and the way I do it sometimes, if, if you're fishing, fish bite uh, right at the end of the day, sometimes through the night, and often first thing in the morning. That's when they feed, right? And what they were doing, with the style there was, is they would come out from the shore and they would fish in towards the shallows around the structure and, and the reeds and the weeds like that. So that's what they had done all night and had not caught a thing. So Jesus turns to Simon and says, I want you to do something that he knows doesn't make any sense. It's beyond conventional wisdom. He's, fish, he's, he's telling Simon to fish at the wrong, side of, uh, wrong time of the day on the wrong side of the boat in the deep waters where he knows there are no fish. But he does it anyway. He does it anyway simply because Jesus asked. And then the unexpected thing happens. He catches probably the largest catch of fish he has ever caught in his life. So much so that he has to call to his friends, James and John. They bring out the other boat. It's so large, it threatens to swamp the boats. And then they come in and they are amazed by what has happened. And I realized... That sometimes, well, perhaps all the time, Jesus is asking us to fish in the deep waters. She's, he's asking us to fish in those places where we don't expect anything to happen. He's asking us to fish in places where we think we're the experts and know how to analyze it and know the, the right way to do it. And he's saying, no, let's do it a little different way. And there's something really powerful about that kind of experience, uh, I, I think forever, but I think especially for uh, the modern church for us today. I, I did a little uh, demographic study of, of, for your church, and I, I looked at it about a two-mile radius, about five-mile radius. And, and uh, the good news is you're close to the state average. Um, uh, the bad news is state average is not great. Um, if, if you look at uh, two to five miles of, of this church, uh, there's about 17 to, to 20% of the people who attend some kind of religious service uh, throughout the week. Uh, there's another, I don't know, 15% who will watch some kind of religious service on TV, okay? Um, but most of the other folks um, don't, you know, they'll answer the question, do you have faith and does it mean something to you? And most folks say, no, not really. However, in this same area, um, if you ask the people, are you a spiritual person? 50 to 60% of the people will say yes. Okay? So that means around this church right now, there are people, uh, we classify those folks now as spiritual but not religious. And, and what the not religious means is, is that they have some kind of suspicion 
about organized religion because of what society has told them or some negative experience in their life or in their family, that they say, organized religion is not for me. But the life of the Spirit, a journey of the Spirit, of trying to connect to something greater than myself, all the things that we long for and that we search for and that we're in a journey together, they have the same desires. And so I know sometimes we hear statistics like that and we can get all sad about it. I think of it as a wonderful opportunity. That is one of our deep waters for, you know, the modern church. How do we understand um, to be out in community in such a way that people understand that whatever they think about the organized religion, um, we, we do it in a different way. And we are all looking for the same kind of thing. And, and for me, then, is trying to understand a, a hospitality in a, in a really kind of different way. Uh, I... I uh, uh, I sometimes call it radical hospitality to, to help us understand that we need to move beyond conventional notions. It's, it's realizing that we're moving uh, beyond just becoming a welcoming community, but rather a community that seeks, rather just embraces the people around us. We seek, rather just embrace diversity. So the thing is, is we don't wait for people to come through our doors because to tell you the truth, a lot of people are not going to come through our doors. We go out the doors and try to engage people in their spiritual journey in the wider community. It, it causes me to, to ask really kind of different questions, uh, things like this. What does it mean to embrace radical hospitality in the face of a society that at best is apathetic to Christianity and at worst is sometimes hostile towards it? And, and we, have to, we have to face that openly and honestly and, and realize that the, the best way I know how to do that is, is to be out in the community forming relationships. Because if people are hesitant to walk through the doors of our churches, I'm pretty sure one of, one of the primary ways in which they may do that is when someone they trust and love and care about invites them to come and they walk through with them. And the only way I know how to form those relationships are out there in community. And uh, I, I think that is one of the deep waters that Jesus is calling us to today uh, as United Methodist, as a Christian people. Now, we have to realize we have to do it in a way that makes sense. It needs to be relevant. It needs to be contemporary. And because something happens uh, well here, it may not happen well in another part of the world or in another part of the country. Again, I thought back to my first church. Uh, this happened within the first month of, of my stay there at Baconton United Methodist Church. And what I realized, because I was only at the church for four days, that if I went Monday morning, uh, there's only, by the way, in Baconton, there was three stores downtown. Uh, the post office, a diner, and a general store. And I discovered on Monday morning, and again, this wasn't planned out. This is because I like coffee and I like talking to people. Uh, I would go Monday morning, somewhere around 10 o'clock. I would buy a cup of coffee at the diner. Then I would stand on the sidewalk outside of the post office. And if I did that, I saw everybody in my congregation every week. In fact, I saw everybody in every other congregation every week. <laughs> And without, without you know, I wasn't doing it as some kind of intentional evangelistic tool, although I really realized it kind of was uh, after I looked back on it. I did it because I wanted to be in relationship with my community. And the only way I know how to do that is to be in places where the community is. Now, the funny thing was I started learning all sorts of things about my community and what we cared about. And, and uh, in fact, in that, within that first month, I learned that one of the, one of the, uh, 
you know, long-standing families of my church uh, was mad at me, the Gorey family. And, uh, and I thought about it, and I actually learned it not from a member of my church. I, I learned it from a member of the Baptist church. And uh, said, hey, do you know the Gorys are mad at you? And I went, nope, had no idea. <laughs> but thank you very much. And so I thought about it, and I could not think of what I had done. But I'm sure I must have done something because I was, you know, I was brand new. I was to this ministry thing. And so being the shy, unassuming guy that I am, I called Ernie. <laughs> and said, hey, Ernie, uh, can I come out and visit you this afternoon? He said, sure. Of course, he was a farmer too. So I went out to his farm and uh, we did the same thing. We're sitting on his porch, rocking chair, sweet tea. And finally, we're just kind of chatting. And and I said, Ernie, let me tell you why I came out. I said, I have heard through the grapevine that you're mad at me. And I, I, for the life of me, I've thought about it. I do not know why. And I'm really sorry, whatever I did, I want, to, I, I want us to talk about it so that we can figure it out because I love being here at this church and, and I thought we had a great relationship. So he paused for a moment and that kind of laid back way. He said, well, Greg, you never come to visit us. I said, okay, um, help me for a moment. I've been here a month and I'm pretty sure this is the third or fourth time we have sat on your porch drinking sweet tea. He goes, yeah, but Greg, you call before you come. I went, what? (laughs) He said, yeah, you call. You're just supposed to show up. I said, Ernie, you know, when I was growing up, if I just showed up at someone's house, I would get in trouble. He goes, it doesn't matter where you grew up. You're here now. You just show up. I went, okay. And I said, is there anything else? He said, yes, you have never had a meal with us. And I said, well, you've never invited. Oh, I was supposed to just show up at a meal time so they could make a fuss about it, pull the extra chair up, run in the kitchen, make a little extra food. It was great. (laughs) I gained 20 pounds in three years. I started showing up in everybody's house at mealtime. And I started, you know, sometimes it'd be breakfast, sometimes lunch, sometimes dinner. You know, if I knew the garden was especially ripe, I went for dinner. I was going to get great tomatoes. You know, <laughs> I had absolutely no idea. But for them, that counted as hospitality, right? And it was important. Now, don't try that in California. <laughs> Maybe Davis is different. But in my experience... That doesn't work in California. But you see, the thing is, is I had to find out, you know, and the only way I found out was by asking and be open to doing things in different ways. If I, if I wanted to be the one to really make those connections and be truly hospitable, I had to take the time to figure out what was going on, you know. And, and where we live, it's not just, you know, regional differences, but it's cultural differences and ethnic differences. And, and we have to take the time to understand what it means to be truly hospitable, not just here, but in the wider community. And that takes a lot of time and effort and conversation. You know, back in Georgia, we called it a little uh, Southern hospitality. Um, But it's basically about opening yourself up to all those around you in, in ways that truly matter and taking the time to figure out the many different ways that may be. 
So we need to take the time to listen and to build relationships, take the time to create a radically welcoming community that seeks rather than just embraces diversity and community. Uh, I was reminded um, this great book uh, by Diana Butler Bass uh, entitled Christianity for the Rest of Us. She talks very specifically about hospitality. In fact, she believes that we really can't be a vital church unless we at least do that and two or three other things that are central to who we are. But she talks about it in a really particular way and different than the way in which at least I have been taught hospitality, what hospitality means within the church. Uh, she said we have, to, we have to understand that we live in a world of strangers, right? That uh, where fear and anger and hostility build walls between people and chip away at a communal soulfulness, a spirit. There's suspicion, and we, and we have to understand that. And so if there's any concept that we need to restore to its original depth and evocative potential, it is this concept of hospitality. And what she says and, uh, and what she thinks is it's, it's about creating a free space a space where there are no strings attached, where strangers can can become friends in whatever way it makes sense to them. And equally, it's a place that offers travelers safe passage through what sometimes feels to them dangerous country when they feel over their heads, an oasis of love and hospitality. And so I learned from Diana that, that hospitality then is not a program or a methodology for welcoming people into membership. Nor is it a process for changing people into who we are or who we think they should be. Rather, hospitality, as she says, is a free space where change can take place in whatever way it needs to, where strangers can become friends, or if people can just simply find a safe passage on their spiritual journey, whether they stay with us long term or not. This is so important, let me say it to you in a different way. True Christian hospitality, I think, is not a recruitment strategy designed to encourage strangers into church membership. Rather, it is a central practice of simply who we are uh, as a Christian people, something we do with no strings attached, something Christians are called to be for the sake of that thing itself. It's not, therefore, a responsibility of a committee, It's the taproot of the entire church of all of us who call ourselves Christians. So we are called to live it out as an expression of our love and our faith. So as God welcomes us, has welcomed us into the family of God, accepting us just as we are and then challenging us to live more out of and into a life of love, we are called to welcome and to love each other, especially the stranger in our midst especially moving out into community and creating community in radically different ways. Through hospitality, I believe Christians imitate God's welcome. And God's welcome is huge. You know, if, if we do that, and, we, and, we, and, and we're taking the time to, to find new and, and exciting and maybe even a little scary ways of building relationship and building communities, transformation will happen our world will become a different place and and we will begin step by step little by little realizing that dream of a loving community that accepts all people that i know we all long for and i know that god intends
but we must do it together. So, I guess it was two or three months uh, later, um, I got a call late, late one night. It was from Sister Martha, who was uh, Brother Joe's wife. And I picked up the phone, and I could hear panic in her voice, and she said, Greg, come quick, come quick, something horrible's happened. You have to come right now. And she hung up the phone. Well, I, I didn't know what was going on. Um, so I called two or three people, let them know that I was about to go over to their house because I, I just didn't know. And uh, when I got there, as I was driving up, I saw a glow in their front yard, and I pulled into their driveway. And when I pulled, I saw a cross in their front yard, and it was on fire. And, and Joe and Martha were standing in their front yard just looking at it. So I walked up to them, I put my arms around them, and I said, what happened? What's going on? And Joe looked at me and, and said, Greg, I, I, just, I just couldn't do it anymore. I thought about it, and I thought about it. I, I just could not do it anymore. Today, I resigned from the KKK. See, he had, he had gotten to the point where that man who he was not expecting who he had discounted all of his life, said something to him that changed his heart. And it changed him, his heart, so fully that he began acting out on it and living out his faith, living out his belief. Even though it scared him to death, he just knew, he just knew that he had to be hospitable in a really different way. Amen. Amen.